Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful for your love and mercies you've shown us for Jesus, for the spirit to, to convict, transform, and, and heal us. We pray that you will pour your spirit upon our hearts and minds today. May we draw close in fellowship and have great wisdom and discernment in advancing your kingdom as we study together. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number two in the uh, quarterly God's Mission, My Mission. And the title this week is God's Mission to Us, Part Two. And the memory text for this week is, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This uh, text is actually, I'm sure you've all heard it. You probably don't really question it. But this text has come to be questioned by a lot of people, some suggesting maybe it's really not part of the original Bible. And they question it because they question whether there is a three-person Godhead or only a one-person Godhead, the Father, who then gave birth to or created a son sometime thereafter and allowed the son to share in some of his magnitude and so forth. And and there really is no spirit, that the spirit is just a representation of the father. This is some of the arguments that go forward. And the argument there ultimately undermines that God is an infinite being of love with three individualities united in a way that we cannot fully comprehend. So they claim that this text was altered or added later after the New Testament church. So for those who like to be scholarly, in the notes you will find the various scholarly references for what I'm about to share with you. And you can go do your own research, but I thought it might be good to look at some of the historical data for that. And so here's a couple of quotations from some historical sources. The early church writings attest to baptismal interrogations in which the baptismal candidates are given an opportunity to confess their faith in connection with baptism. According to the second century father Tertullian, the baptismal candidate would renounce Satan and profess Christian faith in response to a set of three formal questions about belief in father, God as father, God as son, and God as Holy Spirit. Hippolytus, around 215, described the baptismal rite of the Church of Rome in comparable language, and Cyprian reports a similar practice uh, in Rome. Similar questions are found in Palestine, Cappadocia, and Alexandria. These confessions of faith at the entrance to church membership were interrogative or dialogical in structure. The baptismal candidate would respond, I believe. So in other words, the the person doing the baptism would say, do you believe God in God as uh, the Father? I believe. Do you believe in God the Son? I believe. Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? I believe. And then they would be baptized. That's That's what that's describing. The baptismal candidate would respond, I believe, to questions likely adapted from the Trinitarian baptismal formula about God and his salvific acts. By mid-fourth century, by mid-fourth century, baptismal questions were changed to, so we're talking 300 years after Christ, to a declarative creed. So the first 300, they're being asked specifically, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? I believe, I believe, I believe. By mid-fourth century, baptismal questions were changed into a declarative creed, the so-called Roman creed. And remember, there wasn't a Roman church or a Roman pope until the Justinian's general, Belarius, defeated the Arians in 538 AD, was the first Roman pope. So for, for up until 538 AD, there is no official Roman-sanctioned church. There are Christians worshiping in Rome, but no official Roman-sanctioned church. By mid-fourth century, baptismal questions were changed to the declarative creed, the so-called Roman creed, which emerged in connection with the Arian controversy. The Arians were those who denied the divinity of Christ and denied the Holy Spirit and affirmed that there was only God the Father and that Jesus was an offspring of God the Father. The oldest witness to the Roman creed is Marcellus' letter to Julius in Rome at around 340-341. His confession of faith needed the authority of Rome and the apostles in order to guarantee its continuing existence in the liturgy. It was called the Roman Creed partly because its text was composed and approved in Rome. In the seventh century, the first third and third articles were extended to become the Apostles' Creed. Although some scholars have denied that the Trinitarian baptismal formula in the Great Commission was part of the original text in Matthew, that's the text, our memory verse today, there is no manuscript support for their contention, meaning no 
No early manuscript biblical texts support the idea that the Matthew text was added later. All the earliest manuscripts contain it. So the Bible itself gives this um, commission, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So historical review does not support the idea that the early church baptized only in the name of Jesus or only in the name of the Father, um, but also in the name of all three. More importantly, what does the Bible itself reveal? And let's look at Acts 8, 15 to 17. This is the Acts of the Apostles after Christ's ascension. They're going out evangelizing. We're sharing what they're doing to spread the gospel. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice, hey, wait a second. These people were baptized into Jesus. They weren't baptized into the Holy Spirit. There's a problem here. We've got to fix that. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So they're fixing a problem when people were in the early church baptizing only in the name of Jesus. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through, this is Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and so forth. Now, this is a very strange sentence structure for the inspired writers to write if there's no Holy Spirit. If, if, if the, those who are, are denying the existence of the Holy Spirit and suggest that the Holy Spirit is just the spirit of the Father, the Father himself moving, then, then this sentence structure should be at that time, Jesus, full of his Father's spirit, said, I praise you, Father. <laughs> but that's not what it says. It actually it in, indicates and suggests the Holy Spirit or, or makes a... Um, personal pronoun here, or the Holy Spirit, uh, a noun as an individual of a separate identity that was empowering Jesus to say this about his Father. And then in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Again, this is this is very strange sentence structure if the Spirit is not his own individual. Um, according to the foreknowledge of the Father through the power of the Father, if it's simply the Father doing it. But it's not. It's the power of the Spirit, the, the third member of the Godhead. And so the Bible is pretty powerful and, and straight on this idea that there are three members. And then <clears throat> let's look at the divinity of all three. And you all know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Word became flesh. So we're talking about Jesus here who was with the Father in the very beginning, and he is fully God who is the creator, and he is full of grace. We And from the fullness of his, gra his grace, that's the grace of Jesus, <clears throat> we have all received one blessing after another. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So the Bible here is unequivocally affirming that Jesus is fully God, equal with the Father, from the very beginning of anything you can call the origins. And then what else the Bible says elsewhere about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 to 17? He has made... He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And some people will go, so we see the creative power of Jesus, the sustaining power of Jesus, that nothing was made without him. But some will go, yeah, but, but there it is, firstborn, firstborn, right there, there it is. There's father, and then there's the firstborn, and then Jesus made things. This is what they'll do. That's because they don't understand in the Bible the word firstborn has two meanings. There is the meaning of birth order, the one who was physiologically born into the world. And then there's one where the firstborn in Scripture means the one who receives the authority and power of the family. So look at Abraham's family. Who was Abraham's son born first into the world? Ishmael is his firstborn son, but which son of Abraham is his firstborn according to the promise and through which all the authority and power and blessings of the family flow? Isaac. 
Isaac, which is a second born son, but he's considered the firstborn. So firstborn actually doesn't mean about it, it exclusively origins or coming in. It means also this position of authority to carry forth the family promises and blessings. And it, you have the context has to determine. And if you look at the context of Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it's clearly not about birth order or origins of existence. It's about the authority of carrying forward the purposes of God in creating all things and sustaining all things. And so a reasonable person would recognize that that to draw the other conclusion is a bending or wrenching away of what the meaning is intended there by Paul. But look at Jesus himself. He claimed one with the Father. John eight fifty eight. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And then I and the Father are one, Jesus claims. The apostles recognized Jesus as God in John 10, excuse me, John 20, 28. Thomas said, said to him, my Lord and my God. If Jesus is not God, then what Thomas is doing here is idolatry. If what Thomas is doing here would be worshiping a false god unless Jesus is actually God. We, and then First John 5.20, we also know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know, know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even this, this, his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So the Bible makes it very clear. Jesus is fully God. And then Jesus mentions that himself, that a third member of the Godhead, is, who, who Jesus calls the comforter or the counselor, is the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 15 to 17, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. For the word cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with, with you and will be with you and be within you. But notice again, the sentence structure. If the Holy spirit is simply the father and the spirit of the father and not enough, then this is again, strange sentence structure. I will ask the father and the father will come be with you with his spirit, as Paul said, I, I am with you in spirit. When Paul was saying to the people in Corinth, I will be with you in spirit. He would say, well, the father will be with you with his spirit. No, the father will send you another, someone other than the father will be with you. Uh, John fourteen twenty six. but the counselor, the Holy Spirit from wh whom the father will send in my name. There you have counselor, Holy Spirit, one, the Father, another, and my name, a third. We have three different right there Jesus is talking about. John 15, 26, when the counselor comes, I will send, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Again, all three being discussed in the same sentence. In the Old Testament, even the text in the Old Testament, well, the first in the creation what do you think it means when the Father, when God in Genesis 126 says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness? Do you think that actually means let me make man in my likeness? So even in this, there's, there's the plurality there. There's more than one going on. In the, old, in the text in Deuteronomy, um, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. In this text, the Lord and God in the passage are the Hebrew um, word. The, the Lord is, is Yahweh and, and, and the word God is Elohim. And so it really would mean Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. <clears throat> and so the word Elohim is a plural word. That's the word in Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image. So the Elohim word by definition is a, plur is a plural word. So it would actually read like the God, the, the one who is more than one is yet one. <laughs> and, and, and when you think about this idea of oneness, there is one, the, the word one can mean a singularity, one isolated individual singular yeah. element identity person. But the one can also mean a plurality of one. We have one team taking on two teams. 
And so that one team is the one unit, or we are to be one in Christ, or the church is to be one, as it talks about. Okay, so there's a one that is a plurality, and in the Hebrew, there are two words for one, yachid and echad. And the first yachid is a singularity, one isolated individual, whereas echad is the plural one, more than one being united as one. And in the text here, the Lord our God is one Lord, they use the echad, the plural one. So the one is more than one, is a plural one, yet is still one. The Old Testament provides other texts where we see members of the Godhead are all referenced. Isaiah 48, 16 and 17, Now the sovereign Lord, Father, has sent me, the Son, with his Spirit, Holy Spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Or Isaiah 42, 1. Here is my, that's the Father speaking, servant, that's the Son, whom I, the Father, uphold um, my my, the Father, chosen one, the Son, in whom I, the Father, delight. I, the Father, will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, on him, the Son, and he, the Son, will bring justice to the nations. You see the reference here to all three again in the Old Testament. So the Bible gives strong evidence of the plurality of our one God, supporting the idea of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for me, the greatest evidence, the most compelling evidence, the reason why I'm convinced it's true, is because I understand that God is love. The Bible declares it to be, in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And the Bible tells us that love is not self-seeking, it's other-centered. And so if God is a being of actual other-centered love, it requires an other. If God at any time in eternity past was a singularity, at that point in time in, in God's existence, God would not be functionally love. He would be something other than love because love cannot function in a singularity. It requires an other. And so if God is an eternal being who is eternally loved, then in eternity past, there had to be more than one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for them to constantly give and love and, and be other-centered and not seek for self. And this is why there's the attack on the Godhead, because the attack on the Trinity is an attack to undermine the character of God and make God something other than love, an authoritarian figure who is who controls and oversees, and this is Satan's vision of reality. If you, if you see the t- uh, Satan's fall, as recorded in Isaiah, he sought to rise up over and rule over. And this picture of a non-Trinitarian God has one deity supreme ruling over all the others. And that's Satan's version of reality. Whereas the, the biblical truth is there's a plural uh, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are all self, selfless, seeking to uplift the other. And you see in the life of Jesus, he never takes away for himself. He's always glorifying the Father. And the Father is sending the Spirit to glorify the Son. And they're always seeking to uplift the other. They're never seeking to get self. And Philippians tells us that he who had equality with God didn't think that equality was something to be held on to, but surrendered that equality all the way down to the cross for the uplifting of us. And so this is the real attack of these anti-Trinitarians. They're really actually presenting a satanic version of God. In the early Adventism, Ellen White held that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all fully and equally God. And, and there are some quotes from her. One of these is uh, seventh, uh, the seventh Adventist Bible Commentary, page 437, quoting out of the Signs of the Times. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, in purpose. The only being that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's another good good Bible text to show in Jesus, we have Jesus encompassing the fullness of the Godhead. The counselor is the Holy Spirit, the everlasting Father, and this is the child that was born to us. His goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. The Jews had never considered, had never before heard such words from human lips, and a convincing influence attended them, for it seemed that divinity flashed through humanity, as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The words of Christ were full of deep meaning. He put forth the claim that he and the Father were of one substance, possessing the same attributes. And then first selected messages, page 296, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, John 1, 4. It is not physical life that is here specified, but immortality, the life which is the exclusive property of God. The word was 
who was with God and was with God had this life. Physical life is something which each individual receives. It is not eternal or immortal. For God, the life giver uh, uh, takes it again. Man has no control over his life, but the life of Christ was unborrowed. No one can take this life from him. I lay it down myself, he said. In him was life original, unborrowed, underived. This life is, is not inherent in man. Jesus is not an offspring of the Father. He didn't get his, his life from the Father. He is an original being, an eternal being, who has his own life originally unborrowed and underived. This is the, the position. And then uh, one quote from the Desire of Ages 671 about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that could be, uh, Jesus gets listed. And then she goes on to say, sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. So at least in the early Adventist church, Ellen White took the strong position. Um, and then in evangelism, one more quote, page 615, there are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. And that's what our text is today in Matthew. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet there is a real movement afoot to undermine the uh, true character of God, his nature in, in, of other-centered giving and love, uh, and w- we should resist that. We should stick with the truth that God is love, and love only exists uh, functionally in the service of others. And the eternal being uh, is a triune being where they're always seeking to serve the other because they are other-centered beings. All right, let's go into Monday's lesson where we'll spend most of our time today. Uh, Monday in the lesson on it. The lesson is titled Making Disciples. What is a disciple? They're students. They're pupils. And in Luke, written by the physician Luke, Jesus is often called teacher because he's got students or pupils. And teachers historically were called doctors and eventually physicians, you know, get a doctoral degree in various subjects and so forth. And and physicians were eventually called doctors. And so in my paraphrase in the New Testament in the book of Luke, instead of referring to the, the disciples as disciples, I refer to them as interns because interns study at the at the you know chief physician to learn from him and there and I wanted to bring home this idea that that the disciples in the in the New Testament during the time of the Gospels they weren't teachers they were students they were interns they were in their training phase they were learning and so that, that's what I did and in Luke twelve twenty two as an example uh, I put then turning to his interns Jesus said. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about how the future will turn out and about your next meal will come, where your next meal will come from, or with what you close yourself. So I just did that for the idea of bringing home to us today that the in the gospel era, they weren't really teachers. They were students learning from the great teacher. So what does it mean for us today to be a student, an intern, or a disciple of Jesus? What does that mean? Always learning from him. Always learning. I like that. Mm-hmm. Is being a disciple of Jesus determined by which church one belongs? No. no. What about whose Bible class one attends? <laughs> <laughs> or which theology professor one had in college? Let's read 1 Corinthians 1. 10 through 13 out of the NIV. And it says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What about today? Someone says, I follow Luther. I follow Calvin. I follow Wesley. I follow White. I follow the Pope. Or within a denomination, do we say, I follow Maxwell, I follow Bachelor, I follow Jennings? (laughs) Is Christ divided? If we are disciples of Christ, why are there so many divisions within Christianity? 
everybody wants to be right. So is, is that a wrong desire? Should, should we have a desire in our heart to be something other than right? I don't disagree. I don't think it's wrong. I think we should have a desire for right, and that's called righteousness. Everyone who wants to be right wants to be righteous. They want to be part of the righteous. So I think that desire is, is correct. But how does that desire lead towards division? I have a philosophy that um, I compare new ideas to hot lava, where let's say Luther, he gets a new idea. He's hot. Everybody that he will attract attracts to him. And then once they are solidified in that, that belief, they kind of cool down and they stay put. But then you have Wesley come and he has a whole another idea and that's hot lava and they're all happy about that. But then they cool down and they stay put. So you have more and more advancements, but they have to actually sort of leave the original group to advance because the original group is stuck and they're solid and they're not continuing to grow. So why is it that some are growing and some are not then? What you're describing is that truth is unfolding. Some people in, uh, will get excited about new, real, unfolding truth and accept it. But some of their peers that they've grown up with or, or worshipped with may not. Uh, what makes the difference? I think whether you're open to unfolding truth or whether you feel like you've got the truth. And this, I don't need anything else. Do we have separate scriptures? Is that the primary problem? There are there are um, groups that, that come out with other things that they hold up to equality to the scripture or even supersede the scripture. But for most of Christians, do they do they claim to have an, another authority other than the scripture for most that are divided in these different denominations or most claim the same Bible? Yeah, they claim the same Bible. So how is it if we're having the same scripture that we have all these divisions? Is it because the scripture itself has been cut away from the other revelations that God has given us to balance our understanding of scripture? Romans 1.20, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We're trying to understand scripture divorced from objective reality and what God has revealed to how his creation functions, what we call the design laws. And taste and see that the Lord is good. Check them out. Experience it. How life actually works. Our life experiences. How much of theology and what's taught in the different systems are actually divorced of how things work. We teach things that actually are contrary to how reality works. Exactly. Can you think of any Bible teachings that actually go against your own life experiences? When I say Bible teachings, let me rephrase that. Can you think of any teachings taught within the circle of Christianity that go against your life experience, goes against how reality works as you practice your life? How about this one? God is love, and what he wants is your love for him. But if you won't love him, the way he seeks and responds to your lack of love for him is to threaten to torture you in hell for all eternity for not loving him. <laughs> now, in your personal relationships, have you been able to get more love in your relationships by threatening to torture people who don't love you? <laughs> See, that idea is actually contrary to how reality works. You can never get love from people by threatening to kill, torment, or torture them if they don't love you. You can't get it because it's an actual violation of one of God's design laws, the law of liberty. Love only works in freedom. So I think there's lots of division because of the acceptance of the lie. The lie, God's law functions like human law. A set of made up rules. And once you make up rules, rules are amendable. You can amend rules. You can update rules. You can, you can change them. But God's law, Jesus said, do you not think that I have come to change the law of the prophets or abolish them? I have not come to do that. Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen will by any means change from the laws until all has been accomplished. The laws upon which creation are 
are built to operate cannot be changed and life as we know it continue. The universe as God designed it would collapse and be destroyed if he changed the, the nuclear the laws of the nuclear force, the laws of gravity, the laws of friction and motion, the laws that govern all of his creation. If he changes them as the universe as we know it doesn't exist anymore, collapses. Mm-hmm. And that includes the law of love, the law of truth, the law of liberty. These are constants upon which sapient and sentient beings operate in health and life flourish. So why so many? Because we have exchanged the truth of God's law for the idea that God's law functions no different than the types that sinners make. And, and, and sinners abridge and change. And think about how many different governments there are and how many different, uh, what's legal in even America. One state is, is different from one state to the next. Our church, when it started... In 1880, well, 1860s and then 1888, um, how did we get away from being unified and studying the scriptures uh, and come up with these different ideas? I mean, uh... so 1888 was a big turning point. This was the big issue: was the question of the law. What law in Galatians was added? And there were two schools. The Righteousness by Faith School, which was the advancing light that was to come forward and which would have, uh, uh, Ellen White said, the spirit was ready to be poured out. All heaven was geared up. The second coming is about to, to occur because this was the final message to light in the world for Christ's return, which was God's law is designable. The law in Galatians that was added to, to lead us to Christ and to diagnose us as terminal, the Righteousness by Faith group said was the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments law written on stone is not an eternal law, it was not always in existence. And the penal legal group, which were in office as the office of the president and other presidents of the general conference, they rejected the righteous by faith group. And Ellen White said, grieve the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the whole plan of salvation, the, 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 excuse me, the whole plan for the second coming has been delayed. And, and, has, and they have kept away from the church, according to these are Ellen White's words, not mine, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which would have finished the work. And why is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit kept away? Well, it's very, it's very reality-based. The Holy Spirit empowers. And will God empower people to lie about him? No. 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 And until we reject the imperial Roman lie about God, his law, and how he functions, we will not receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's as we reject those lies, return to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea, then we receive the outpouring of the Spirit to lighten the world for a coming. So our church had a turning point. And officially, the church took the position of Romanism. And we still teach a Roman version of God who makes up rules like a Roman hierarchy, uses external power to police breaches in his rules, have a judicial system like a human court, uh, weighing evidences, drawing conclusions, determining how much suffering and pain is necessary, using his power to inflict it for justice sake, uh, making making all the sins go in his son, punishing his son in our place. And so we have in Adventist literature, God killed Jesus in order for justice sake, accepting the blood payment of an innocent uh, to the accounts in heaven, declaring a guilty to be innocent, even though he's not, saying you're righteous when you're unrighteous. It is a complete corrupt system that teaches fraudulent things about the whole plan of salvation, the nature and character of sin, the truth of, of God's character is misrepresented. And this is why the Holy Spirit has been held away from our church. Mm-hmm. Well, the, from 1864, when our church was formed, to 1888, did did they change this, or is in 1864 did our founders, not Ellen White particularly, maybe, but the others, did they go with the Roman uh, theology of just judgment and things like that? Did we never have any so other what, thoughts until the end? So, so what? What Linda was describing is true. The founders of the Adventist Church came out of all the various other denominational churches. Uh, truth is unfolding. All of the various denominational churches came out of the Roman church when Luther and Zwigli and and uh, Calvin and, and many other reformers started breaking away from some of the uh, corrupt imperialistic arbitrary rules and superstitious things that had come through the over a thousand years of believing God's law works like human law. That whole system became authoritarian, 
canon law, rules over, legal mechanics, such legal mechanics that, that, that led to further corruption, not just that you can have your sins paid for by the blood of an innocent sacrifice, you can have your sins paid for by gold to the church. Same process, just different payment, pay gold to the church. And, and you can not only have your sins paid for, if you give more gold to the church, you can have your loved one's sins who are in purgatory suffering, you can pay for their sins and launch them into heaven too. I mean, it's a legal mechanistic process of paying legal debts with fines of various kinds. And of course, the reformers came along and they began reforming and rejecting lie after lie that all stemmed, stemmed from this, this core base lie that God's law works like human law. And as this reformation went along, it started by specific doctrinal things being rejected, like the doctrine of purgatory, which Martin Luther addressed by introducing and inventing the, the, the doctrine of, of penal substitution. The purpose of penal substitution atonement was to get rid of purgatory. Purgatory taught that some sins, having not been purged from your yourself uh, in this life, you don't go to heaven, but you don't go to hell. You still have some payment or purging to do. So you go to a place of purgatory where you suffer the appropriate length of time to finish purging those sins, and then you can go on to heaven. And, and that led to the whole doctrine of, of, of manipulating the living masses, and they would go... Uh, the evangelists of the church, the Roman church, would go through communities and say things like, whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And uh, they would use this to drum up collections for the Roman church. And, and it, he saw how perverse and abusive this was and saw um, you know, the gospel in, in Romans that were saved by faith, not by works nor by payments. And so he invented this doctrine that all sins of every person, past, present, and future of all time were placed on Jesus and punished in Jesus. And therefore, you accept Jesus as your Savior, then all your sins of all times have already been punished. There's no further punishment necessary to purge them from your record or from you. Therefore, the doctrine of purgatory is gone. And that was his goal, to eliminate purgatory. And then as time unfolded, other doctrinal Errors made up of arbitrary rules were identified by other reformers like baptism by sprinkling versus immersion, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this kept marching forward. The Adventist founders came from Methodism, Congregationalism, uh, et cetera. And they all came together on a couple of core truths. One that they came together on was the advent of the Messiah and the Seventh-day Sabbath, ultimately. And then they ultimately came together on this idea of a heavenly sanctuary, that the sanctuary that was to be cleansed was not the earth, but the sanctuary in heaven. And these core truths they were advancing. And in the advancing of that truth, of those truths, the Holy Spirit was leading to the ultimate core foundational truth that has to be recovered and the foundational lie to be rejected. And that was 1888. The lie that God's law functions like human law must be rejected. And we must accept the truth that God's law is design law. And instead, Satan had a great victory, according to Ellen White at 1888. And while this truth has remained, the truth of God's law has continued to remain within individuals within the Adventist population. And you will find people teaching this truth down through time. Ellen White, for sure. Graham Maxwell did. Others did. We're teaching it. The church organization has officially rejected it. And you will find that when you try to bring this forward, the church leadership in various places will uh, suggest that you are not orthodox, that you are, are not biblical. They will try to take action against you to silence you. And just like they did in 1888 with, with Jones and Wagner. And ultimately, they would have done it with Ellen White, too. They sent her to Australia for 10 years to get her as far away from headquarters as you can on the planet Earth. If they had a sh ship they shipped to the moon. They'd probably send her to the moon. <laughs> no, seriously, yeah. because she sided with Jones and Wagner and, and against their, their view, they wanted her far away and they sent her away. And then you read her writings after that, Steps to Christ, Christ Object Lessons, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Desire of Ages, all written after 1888. Yeah. You read those with design law in mind and you will discover she absolutely went on a tear to make clear that, that the plan of salvation is healing and restorative. It's not penal legal. And she advanced the whole principle of the law is the laws upon which life are built by our creator. And this is where we still stand today. And God is calling a people 
to reject this idea that God's law functions like Roman law and come back to worship him as creator. And so what is the disciple? Let's get back to this question. If we are disciples of Christ, then um, we are disciples. Those are the ones who follow Christ. And how do we tell who's a follower of Christ? Jesus himself said in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, this is not an emotion because no one can actually tell what emotion you're having. <laughs> no one can actually tell how you're feeling inside your heart. Other, this is as by this love, all men will know that you are my disciples. This has to be actionable. This has to be some way we live. This has to be functional. It's, not, it's more than just compassion. It has to have actions associated with it. Some years ago, I was consulted to see a man admitted to the ICU after an attempted suicide. And after we introduced myself, I asked him, uh, tell me what's going on that in your life that brought you to this point that you want to die. You want to even take your own life. And he said, my wife is leaving me. And I love her so much, I don't want her to leave. I told her that if she left me, I would kill myself. If she leaves, I want her to regret it and know how much she hurt me. And I said to him, so your goal to die is to punish your wife. And he said, no, I want her to come back because I love her too much to let her go. Some of you are laughing. Wait a second. He says he says he loves her and he's so committed to his declarations of love that he put his life on the line. Don't you realize if he's willing to put his life on the line, that must be love, right? Is this love? sound is going away. This is not love at all. Love seeks to do its best for the other. It's not self-seeking. This man's behavior was not focused on what was good for his wife, her best interest. He showed no interest in understanding her, her struggles, what would make her happy. Why, in fact, did she want to leave him anyway? Could it be because she had been manipulated, controlled, and emotionally abused by him? I mean, could that be part of this? Uh, you know, he had no interest in finding out. He was only interested in getting for himself, taking away her liberty, controlling her to get what he wanted from her. Is that love? No. 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 So our first step in being disciples of Christ is that we must be converted. Our self-centered, me-first, survival of the fittest drives, driven by fear, must die, and we must be reborn to love God and others. We must first have a heart. We can't be a disciple of Christ, a true disciple, running off of me-first motives. So a disciple of Christ, first and foremost, is reborn to love God and others. This is the first step to be reborn. But one can be an immature disciple, can really love God and really love others. But in that good motive, righteous, virtuous motive, take actions that still harm. The doctors who treated George Washington for his pneumonia, they bled him and leached him to get out the evil humors trying to save him. Their motive was good, but their actions contributed to his death. They harmed him. Their intention was love, but their action was death. We can still recognize the motive of those doctors to be good, but this gives us a good example of how love must move past simply loving, altruistic, caring regard to help. If we're actually going to be helpers, if we're actually going to minister love in ways that bring out good results, we have to marry or merge love with something else. Love alone will often harm. If it's all by itself, like the doctors who were intervening with George Washington, altruistic love did not result in a good outcome there. They, they were missing something. What has to be joined with love to become powerful for healing? Truth. 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 That's exactly right. And those doctors did not have the truth about infections, about immune systems. And despite their, their love, the falsehoods that they were operating over about evil humors needing to be bled, led them to take actions to be harmful. In order to be a blessing, truth and love must operate together. And Jesus is the source in our hearts of both truth and love that we gain through the spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth and love. 
Remember Adam and Eve in Eden had love for God and love for each other prior to their fall. But they believed lies about God. And when they believed those lies, love and trust was broken, resulting in fear and selfishness, the carnal drives, the me first instincts. Thus, to be powerful, a true disciple of Christ, to be powerful must be reborn with hearts that love, and they also must be lovers of truth, be individuals who hunger and thirst for the truth, who long to comprehend and apply the truth to their life at the earliest moment they're capable of doing in their development. Then when love is coupled with truth, we are able to become mighty agents for good, true disciples of Jesus. And the most important truth that we, uh, the truth that we must advance is the truth of God's character. And that truth is determined by how you understand God's law. If you understand God's law works like human law, a system of rules made up, it will cause you to believe that God must use power to punish lawbreakers because if there's no consequence, then there's no justice and God's justice. So God becomes the punisher, the source of death. Thus, we understand God's law when we return, excuse me, God's character when we return to the truth that God is creator and he builds reality. And his laws are the laws that not only govern physical reality, they govern the operations of our minds and our relationships. I had a woman who was suffering from depression. She was a Christian married to a Christian husband and belonged to a tradition that taught in their tradition that women are to be subordinate to their husbands and their husbands are to rule over them. So in her marriage, her individuality was constantly submerged in uh, that of her husband's. And as is predictable, when any design law is broken, she was suffering and eventually became depressed. When she became my patient, I began to teach her about the law of liberty, that God had given her own individuality, her own ability to think and to reason, her own power to choose, and that she was not to subordinate her individuality to the control of her husband, and that she was to respect her husband, his ability to think, reason, come to his conclusions. But she didn't have to agree in her heart and mind unless she was fully persuaded in her mind. And she began to think for herself, act in her own judgment on what she understood was the righteous thing that God would have her do. Her depression began to lift. She started to improve. And in the middle of one of our sessions, her husband actually walked into my office with a Bible in hand, put it forcefully down on my desk and said, will you tell my wife that the Bible says that a wife is to submit to her husband? <laughs> and, and prior to, her, to, to his entry, she was looking at me. She was animated. She was smiling. She made eye contact. And as she began to speak, her head dropped, her shoulders rolled in, her hands went between her legs. And you could see hope was being crushed out of her heart. And I looked at him and I said, well, the Bible does say that. But if you keep reading, the Bible says that a husband is to treat his wife like Christ treats the church, sacrificing himself for her. And when you begin sacrificing yourself to promote her health, her welfare, her happiness, her, her autonomy, I'm sure she won't have trouble submitting to that type of leadership. She sat up and she smiled. <laughs> Fortunately for this family, the husband himself was a victim of the lies his church was telling him. <clears throat> and he really wanted to be a good husband in a godly way. And when I pointed this out, he, the truth, the Holy Spirit convicted him of the truth. And he began attending some marital sessions and learned the principles of liberty and began practicing himself. And their marriage healed and her depression resolved. And these are the principles of God being applied. The point here is that even with good motive that this man had, he wanted to be a good husband. He had a lie about how God's law works. He was operating under a Romanization, an authority over, a rulership over. And that actually brought harm to himself and his wife and his family. And I think Paul refers to this very process of the immature. So I don't think this man was lost. I think he was a person who really loved God, but he was immature and didn't understand the truth. And thus he was doing things with good motive that was causing harm, like the doctors bleeding George Washington. I think Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to, to 15. If a man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. 
It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If, if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. The actions, uh, so, so the actions of these workers are to build up, are to bless, are to help. Thus, their actions suggest that they are con- have converted hearts and are seeking to, to, to help, to, to be saved, to, to help others be saved. However, there is an objective difference between gold, silver, and costly stones, which are symbols of righteousness and used in the building of the temple, and wood, hay, and straw, which are consumables and get burned up in fire. There are objective differences between these things. Thus, this suggests some people who have love in their hearts build upon the reality, uh, reality of God's kingdom. They build with eternal truths, things that are pure and holy and survive. They understand God's character and his design laws. While others come to love God, they were not freed from some of the worldly ways, the imposed law rules and systems, and they build with the methods of the world with good motive, like this man trying to control his wife, because that's what you do. So I paraphrase this text this way in the remedy. One can build on this foundation using pure, holy, and costly materials or using ordinary, common, and cheap materials. But ultimately, the work will reveal itself for what it is because the day on which Christ returns will bring everything into the light of truth. On that day, the quality of a person's character building will be revealed by the fiery glory of God's presence. For only those whose characters are in harmony with God's character will be able to stand in the fiery presence in the, in the fiery presence of his life-giving glory. And if those who the builders have worked to build up in Christ survive, the builders will be rewarded with happiness and joy. If, however, the builder's work is burned up, the builder will suffer great sorrow and loss. The builder will be saved, but only as one whose misunderstandings, errors, misconceptions, and mistakes are consumed in the fire of God's truth and love. Just imagine some people who have been out evangelizing and winning converts because they really have a heart for the Lord. But Jesus said, you, seek, you, you search the world over to find a convert, and when you find him, you make him twice the son of hell as he was before, or, or, as, you, or as you are. Some of these people may have been reborn, but they're reborn to love God, but they still have very childish or even worldly ways of understanding. And so they win people to a worldly system of authoritarian control that only harden the hearts. And these people actually are one to systems of religion. They're not one to Christ. The original builder in this, this building with straw and wood, their hearts won to Christ, but they're winning people to systems, not to Christ. Thus, the people that they win are lost even though they are not, they will have great grief at realizing that what they did didn't win people for eternity. The way that some leaders will get between you and the truth is that they cause you to love them because they have brought you to some advanced point, perhaps. Okay, But what happens, unfortunately, is that if, if we don't have that type of Holy Spirit-driven conviction for the truth, and if we if we somehow allow these people, and it, you know, someone could say that of you, but the fact is that you constantly say, "Do your own due diligence." Right. You yes. study. You right. study. You make sure you understand what I'm talking about, yeah. and you mean? you have your own relationship with the Lord, and other people might say that. But if they think that they have an opportunity to get between you because of threatening you with the, the possibility of violating unity, unity and love, for instance, or whatever, okay, just, just, they'll say, just work with me, just stay with me, you know, because I'm, I'm keeping unity here. But the fact is that <laughs> I can give you one example that a, a leader that we all would know would say if, if he was in a meeting that didn't agree with what he wanted, with the objects of that meeting, the objectives of that meeting, he would, he would pause the meeting, go out and act like there was prayer and, and you know, further consideration. Then he'd come back and he'd say, wisdom 
has has revealed to me that we need to do this. So he puts his love for him and his his authority and, and experience before what you know probably should be happening. So do you follow what I'm saying here? Yeah, and that's exactly what Lucifer did in heaven. Yeah. He's actually not just been putting wisdom. Love for him, it's trust me. I have wisdom. Trust my wisdom in place of you developing your own wisdom from, from a relationship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ yourself. And that's the real problem. So when we go to see, make disciples for Jesus, it requires more than teaching people a creed or an attestation to a list of fundamental beliefs or a certain doctrinal statement or participation in a ceremonial event. To make disciples, we have to actually introduce them to Jesus, and they have to become to know Jesus for themselves and become his disciple, not our disciple. That's right. 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 Making disciples of Jesus requires that we first know Jesus ourselves then, to love him as our Savior, to know the truth of his character and methods, and to understand his principles, his design laws. And as we do that, we can share that with other people and lead them to their own relationship with Jesus and appreciation for how he's built things to run, which only enhances our admiration for his character, which takes us right into Tuesday's lesson. And in Tuesday's lesson, it's about the eternal gospel and the eternal good, which is the eternal good news. And if you read in the first paragraph, it says... This is the only place, talking about Revelation chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 7 in the, in the third angel's message, says this is the, excuse me, chapter 14, this is the only place in scripture which the word eternal and gospel are connected. The gospel is the good news of grace offered to all through Jesus Christ. He came into our world to show us grace and truth. He lived a sinless life and died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to bear the penalty of our sins. He rose to life, returned to heaven, was exalted by the Father, and today intercedes for us in the heavenly sanctuary. He will soon fulfill his great promise to return in majesty and glory, and ultimately after the millennium to establish God's kingdom on earth. These are all essential realities of the eternal good news. So, any problems with this? Yes. 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 There is a lot of good news in this paragraph, but I would like to say much of what's in this paragraph is a fruit of, outgrowth, result of the good news, not the good news itself. An evidence of the good news, even. A a revelation of the good news, but not the good news itself. Because the good news is eternal good news. That means it's not good news simply for eternity future. It was good news in eternity past. That means the eternal good news was good news before earth was created, before man fell into sin. The eternal good news was still good news then. And that means the eternal good news has to go beyond Jesus died for our sins because it was still good news before there was any human sinner for Jesus to die for. And if you think about the good news, angels in heaven needed good news. When Lucifer began his rebellion, there was eternal good news that would have refuted that. And what was the eternal good news in heaven that, had it been understood and appreciated, would have aborted the entire rebellion right in its tracks? The truth about his character. The truth about God. That's exactly right, which stems from an understanding of his law. And Lucifer began his rebellion in heaven by suggesting that God is an arbitrary rule maker, a power monger who uses power to, to, to force his way and will hurt you if you, you can't trust God. Every sin must meet its punishment urge Satan from the very beginning, the opening of the great controversy. Satan started this process. And the good news is, no, God is the creator. His laws are the laws that reality operate. He's a being of love, self-sacrifice, other-centeredness. This is the reality. This was the good news from the very beginning. It's eternal. God is an eternal being, and he's eternally good. He's always been good, and he will always be good. He changes not. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is the eternal good news, the good news about God. And this is why in the third angel's message, he comes forward, be in awe of God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. You know, the angel comes with the everlasting gospel and then says, be in awe of God, fear him, be in awe. 
with the hour of his judgment has come. It's time in human history for people to finally recognize God is not like an imperial dictator. He is not like Satan alleges him to be. He is not a rule maker and an inflictor of pain. He is not the source of death. He is the creator. He is the being of love. He is the one who sacrifices self for all others. He is the eternal trustworthy one. Stop judging God to be the one that you have to be protected from. Stop teaching theologies that say we have to have an intercessor stand between us and him and pay a penalty so he won't be mad. We have to have somebody assuage his wrath. We have to have somebody to propitiate his anger. We have to have somebody to plead to him. We have to have somebody erase the books. We have to have a new record. We have to be covered in the robe. We have to do all this stuff because we can't trust him. This is the corruption that has come from believing God's law works like human law. We have to stop it. The eternal good news is God was never against us. Romans 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, gave him up how, how, how will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. In addition to the Father, the Father's interceding. He's working with all of his power, all of his agencies, all his resources, interceding in our behalf to heal, to save, to redeem. And Jesus is also right there working for us. This is the reality of Scripture. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. But what's happened because of the Romanization of Christianity is we've replaced the deity, the creator God, with a creature uh, that functions, a creature, creatures can't build reality. We can't make the laws of physics and gravity and the laws that reality operate upon. So we make up rules that require enforcement and punishment. And when you worship a God whose law works like human law, made up rules that requires enforcement and punishment, you're worshiping a creature. And that's Satan's goal. He displaces God in our hearts and minds, the spirit temple, and becomes the being we worship because we worship a creature whom we must be protected from. And thus the Holy Spirit is withheld and God is waiting for a people to return to worship him who made the heavens and the earth. So he'll pour his spirit out upon us and empower us to take the final message of mercy to the world. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for all that you've done in Jesus. We thank you for the truth that you've revealed. We understand it's time, Lord, and we pray for all the hearts and minds in the world who are appreciating your true nature, your character, that you are creator, that you built reality, that your law is a law upon which life and health operate. We pray that your spirit will empower and light and transform them and enable all these people all over the world, your true spokespersons at this time in history, to to share this message in their community, with their family, with their friends, that more and more people will be won back to this truth, judge you to be the eternal righteous being that Jesus has revealed you to be, and stop worshiping this Roman dictator, this fraud that has corrupted Christianity, that, that the world will be lighted, and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.